Well, in 2001, there was a sociologist named Robert Putman who uh, wrote a book um, about the decline of community engagement in the United States and how our, our culture was becoming less and less involved in in typical activities. Um, the book is called Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community. And so it looks at, at the, the culture's retreat away from things that typically would have been done face-to-face and in person into a more isolated place, mostly because of the advancement of technology. And so now that was 2001, Imagine how he would assess our culture today in 2018. As we see fewer and fewer people involved in groups, into civic organizations, into activities, and even in church. A decline in in being a part of a community, a part of a group. And it wasn't long after uh, Putman's book, Uh, that a sophomore at Harvard University started this little thing called Facebook. And it it, it intentionally was this college guy's hope to be able to just check out other people on campus, Uh, but it evolved into what we know Facebook to be today. We've got a worldwide network of 2 billion users who all interact with friends some of whom they have never met face to face. And they, what, what was originally a chance to connect and reconnect with people you might have known now becomes a, a, a collecting point, a group of people where the distance between people is shrunk down. Now in its second decade, um, Facebook's mission has evolved. In a speech last summer, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, said, it's striking that for decades, membership in all kinds of groups has declined by as much as one quarter. There's a lot of people who now need to find a sense of purpose and support somewhere else. Because people are no longer joining groups and becoming a part of groups, there is now this void to be filled, this need for purpose, this need for support. And of course, Mark Zuckerberg thinks that Facebook can fulfill that need. But I'm seeing cracks in that. I have a friend just yesterday who posted, uh, and they've moved to, where, where are the Smiths at now? Germany? So, and they're in Germany now. So we've stayed connected across, across the ocean. And he said, I am walking away from Facebook. I'm leaving Facebook. It's no longer the life-giving, enjoyable place that it once was. It was no, it's no longer a place to connect with friends. It's no longer a place to, to share one's life with others. It's a place to attack and criticize and divide. And I see that happening more and more, especially in young adults, as they're walking away from Facebook, this, this thing that was, was intended to provide a place for purpose and a place for support is now breaking down because it is, yes, connecting people in ways that people were never connected before. But now it's also dividing people more and more. There's even some research that says uh, using social media can lead to depression. That as you are viewing people's 
feeds. You see that they are dressed better than you. You see that they are happier than you, that they have more vacations than you, and they're, they're smarter than you, and they're, they're more intellectual, and they're fill-in-the-blank, whatever. They appear to be so much better that it makes us miserable in the process. Yet we continue to troll through. We keep going back to it, and that's what Facebook is counting on. But this sermon is not about Facebook. (laughs) This sermon is about something very different. This need for community, this hole of finding purpose and support within a group of people. We thought it might be Facebook that would solve it, but Facebook is not solving it. And so the question for us today is, is what is it that the church is missing that would allow people like Zuckerberg and other social media people, millions of people, to substitute going through all the political rants and vacation selfies to use that instead of being a part of something that is living and breathing and worshiping the creator of the universe? Why are they not a part of church? How has the church allowed this bowling alone theory to become a reality? And so we've been going through the book of Acts, looking at this new community, this community that's being formed around the resurrected Christ. And as I've been preparing for this, this series, back, back in the summer as I was going through it, I really had the idea that, that what we were going to be going through and going through Acts is looking at the mission of the church, which is a great place to be as we think about building a new building and launching a new worship gathering and, and, and trying to be more externally focused. We need to be focused on the mission of the church. And as I have dug more and more into Acts, and especially this last week, I have come to realize that Acts is really not about the mission of the church. Acts is about the community. The community of believers that come around the resurrected Christ. And mission is now the byproduct of that community that is formed around Jesus especially in these early chapters here where we see the people coming together through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, creating this new community, creating this body of Christ. This community introduced people to the good news that God has done through the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the Spirit is empowering them to live out this new life this reorientation, this new community. And because of that, the community continues to grow. The Lord continues to add to their numbers daily, not because of their mission, but because of who they are as a people and a community. And so today, let's get to Acts chapter 4. If you want to be turning there, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and following. We're going to get to this story where where we have this detailed view of what this community was like, how it functioned, how it operated, how it related to one another. And it wasn't always perfect, and it wasn't always ideal, and it had its conflicts. So let's read together. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 
And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had needs. So we start off with this description of the church that says they were, they're one in heart and mind, or another translation says, of one heart and soul. Doesn't that just sound nice? That sounds like a place we want to be. One heart, one soul. Everything is united. Everything is great. It sounds a little bit cliche. It sounds a little bit utopian, but doesn't it sound great? We want to be a part of this united church, this united family, all of one heart and one mind. And then we get to the very next sentence, and it says, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. Hit the brakes. Is that what we're signing up for? Because now you're meddling with my pocketbook. That we see there is this great unity. They were of one heart and one mind. There's this unity, and now we see what that looks like. And maybe that's a little less comfortable. And so here we have the first description of what church unity is like. And it's illustrated not by potlucks. And it's not illustrated by even small groups or worship gatherings. It's illustrated by the sharing of possessions. This illustrates what it means to be of one heart, one mind, one soul. And so as Luke is writing this, as he's writing Acts, he knows that that where our possessions are, that's where our hearts are going to be also. That that the gospel of Luke, that Luke in Acts and the gospel of Luke, they both talk a lot about money. We see this throughout the gospel. We see the parables in Luke chapter 7. and uh, Luke chapter 7, we see the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. We see the story of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12 and the unjust steward in Luke chapter 16 and the rich man in Lazarus in chapter 16 and the parable of the pounds in chapter 19. And of course, as we went through our Advent series, we have these great songs that are presented in Luke chapter 1 and 2, talking about the powerful not being powerful. That everything is flipped upside down. Jesus tells the rich young man in Luke chapter 18 how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Luke has a lot to say about money. Jesus has a lot to say about money. The church has a lot to say about money. And so here we have this new Jesus community and they're sharing their possessions, and they're taking care of each other's needs. How is this possible? How does this work? It says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. It's God's grace at work in them. That they're able to live this life together. 
the power that defeated death on Easter, that shattered the division of languages on Pentecost, that healed the lame man, no, that now releases our tight grip on private property. It's the same power that allows us to give. And now we get two examples of how this giving is played out. Verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What a nickname, son of encouragement. Sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's our good example. Barnabas, this encourager. He's a property owner. And so in this environment of sharing possessions, he sells his land and brings it to the apostles' feet to distribute to those who were in need. And then we have the counter story. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has, filled, Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what has happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the lands? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is not a pleasant story. This is a difficult one to work through. We've got these two examples. We've got Barnabas, who was a landowner and sold land and brought the money. And we have Ananias and Sapphira, who were also landowners and sold the property, but kept part of it for themselves and were not honest about what they had given. And in this deceit, created division in the church. And Luke spends so much detail explaining the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Could it be that this might be something important for us to pay attention to? This chapter 5, verse 11 is also the first place in Acts 
where Luke uses the word church. This is an important description of who the church has been called to be. And so we get this positive image of the church in this example of Barnabas, but it isn't idealized. There's also this negative side to it as well, things that did not go as planned, things that did not go well, things that were not perfect. There was this real struggle with real people being pulled in different directions of how to handle their possessions. There was both faithfulness and there was foolishness. Both are mixed into this story. Yes, they sold their property, which was very faithful, but there was also this foolishness in which they thought that they could deceive the church, that they could deceive God. And they're struggling with their faith, struggling with how to balance their use of possessions. And ultimately, they chose their possessions. And so ultimately, those who choose to secure their life through material things, they receive death. So we look at the story. We look at this description of the church, and what does it have for us today? How can we relate to this? It seems so far off. It seems so disconnected from our culture. It seems so different from our reality. And so what does this look like for us, especially in light of a current world that is looking for a sense of purpose and a sense of support? How can we be that community? The first thing we look at is, is the sense of community that's happening here. One of the great virtues of, of the American culture is the respect for the individual. The individuals are encouraged to, to pursue their dreams, to, to pursue their potential. That we're given our right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Whatever that means. All equally having the same opportunities. That's what we say. But there's a flip side to this virtue as well where we can become so single-minded, we can become so selfish, we can become so independent and exclusive that we lose sight of the community around us. We place such a high value on the individual that it weakens the importance of the community. That it's a bunch of individuals, not the community coming together. A focus on the individual undermines the connection that we have in relationships. Individuals are disconnected from the networks that bring meaning and purpose. Because we're isolated as individuals, the groups are no longer strong. And so we think about my faith instead of our faith. We speak of my relationship with Jesus rather than our life together. We talk about my spirituality rather than how we relate together as a people of faith. We are a country built on this rugged individualism of don't tell me what to do, don't tell me what to be a part of, and that undermines the community. When we look at the story of Scripture, though, we see something very different. From Genesis to Revelation, we see that God is at work in creating a new community, creating a new family, 
a people that are to be a light to the world, a people that are to be a blessing to the world. And they can't do it isolated and individually. They do it as the church. God is creating a people, creating a community, and and calling each of us as individuals to be a part of this new community that is together being the body of Christ with all of its strengths and weaknesses, all of its gifts, all of its backgrounds, all of its baggage. It all comes together to become the body, not a bunch of individual bodies. It's a new community that's not defined by race. It's not defined by language or gender or social class. It's a new community that is gathered around the resurrected Christ. And so through the story of Acts, we see this community coming together. And when people are converted when they experience the power of God, when when they repent and they reorient their lives to the resurrected Jesus, when they reorient their life to to the way of Christ, then they move into this new community. And this new community is what strengthens them, builds them up, builds on this conversion experience. The community sustains their conversion We talked a couple weeks ago about this mountaintop experience, this this moment of experience that we have with God, but it's sustained through community. Without community, the converted risk going back to their old ways, back to the ways of the world, back to the ways of culture. And so our faith is expressed through community, and it's supported by community. That standing alone weakens us. We need the support of the family. Community is not optional. It is God's design for us. And it's God's design for the world. Being a part of church Being a part of the family is God's design. It's not just a ministry that's on the side. It's not the small groups ministry that's over here. It's not Sunday school classes over here. It's not a bit and piece of what we do. Everything that we do is a part of this community. And we risk losing our purpose as a church our identity as a church, when we focus on individual wants and individual comforts and individual social needs, we risk being who God has designed us to be. And so Acts is about God forming a people, a new community of people who will share life together. As we continue to look at this story, How is this community even possible? Because it is not natural. I've said it many times before, we are people and we annoy each other. And so how could we possibly be this kind of family, this kind of unified community? 
This passage in Acts, as well as Acts chapter 2, gives us this picture of what the community of God is like, what life together in this community is like. And both of these include this emphasis on the sharing of goods, the sharing of possessions, that all in the community go without need. The community went without, no one in the community went without the basic needs because everything is being shared. There, there seems to be this culture of generosity, and in this culture of generosity, sharing is quite natural. But notice that this generosity is not coming from some sort of command to give. It's not com- coming from a, a percentage added to, to be taken away from your salary. It's not about tithing. It's not about giving. It's not about offering plates or boxes. It's not about pledges or campaigns or or building projects. It's not about any of those things. The giving here is done as the overflow of a heart of gratitude. That generosity is not coming out of obligation. It's not coming out of, of command. It's coming out of the resurrected Christ. That because of who we are as followers of Jesus, the overflow of that is gratitude. Their behavior, their decision-making, when it comes to their material goods, it comes from a place of gratitude for what God has given us, for what God has blessed us with. For me, I have this strange fear of heights. A fear of heights is not strange. Lots of people have that. Mine is strange, though. Because, <laughs> because if I'm holding on to something, the heights really don't bother me. We were doing stuff in the gym, and I was on one of those scissor lifts all the way to the ceiling. And as long as I had that rail to hold on to, I was fine. But put me on top of a step stool that's only a few steps high with nothing to hold on to, and I'm mush. I need something to hold on to to give me that sense of security, and as long as I have that, it's great. I can climb a ladder. I can climb a ladder from here all the way up to there. I can climb a ladder even higher than that. But when I have to let go of that ladder and step onto the roof where there's nothing to hold on to, I'm a mess. And then even worse is getting off of the roof back onto the ladder. I've got lots of nods there. So now that part's not so strange. But I need something to hold on to. I need something secure. And when we look at our wealth, when we look at our possessions, we hold tightly to our possessions because that's where our security comes from. It's safe to know I've got this thing. I've got this house, I've got this car, I've got this bank account. Whatever it is that we have, little or big, we hold on to it because it provides the sense of security. And for us to be generous with what we have, to be able to give to others, we have to be able to let go of one thing and grab onto something else. And that something else is the resurrected Christ. That when we're holding on to the resurrected Christ, we no longer have to place security in those physical possessions because we're residing in something that's spiritual. And we're holding on to something that's spiritual. And so we've got to loosen our grip on our physical possessions. And when we really understand what Jesus is all about, 
who we really realize what the resurrection is all about. It will allow us to loosen that grip and live lives that are generous because of the gratitude that we have. Generosity is possible because God has been generous to us. And even beyond that, the the, the Spirit fills our lives and our hearts and, and drives out the fear that allows us to freely share. And so in God's community, generosity is not because it's commanded. Generosity overflows naturally because people understand who they are and who Jesus is. And so it can be easy for us to look at stories like this and certainly easy to preach like this and and dismiss these stories as something that's idealistic and something that's impossible for our culture today. The idea of people selling property and bringing it to church to give, but it's not impossible. From my vantage point, I get to see this a lot. I see people buying cars for others who need cars. I see people bringing their entire bonus check to be distributed to those who are in need. I see people paying for childcare for a single mom who's needing to complete her education. I see rent being paid for those who are chronically ill. I see utilities being paid for those who are between jobs. I see meals being provided for those that are in the hospital or who have a baby. I see furniture being donated. And it's not just material goods, it's time as well. The time is given, which I think is so much more valuable than our money, especially in our culture now. To give time says so much. For the journey that Laura and I have been on with with hope, we have seen this come together as people rally together to, to collect money to help pay for a prosthetic leg or to be able to, to send us to an amputee conference so that we can understand what it is this world is that we're in with prosthetics and limb differences. I can see it happening among us, not just being the beneficiary of it. There have been times in our, our life as we, as we were adopting <laughs> two nieces to come into our home where where $500 checks would be in our mailbox anonymously to pay for what the kids needed that school year. And so the community coming together is a very real thing. It's not just this idealized, utopian thing. That if we really understand who we are as followers of Christ, then giving will overflow out of that. But we have to be connected with one another enough to even know what the needs are. And this is where community is so important. Because if we're disconnected from with one another, if we're, if we're just a collection of individuals 
then we don't even know what the needs are. And then the, the, the giving cannot overflow into that. And this is part of the reason why we focus on gather, grow, and go, because, because these different contexts are important for community to build around, that we need a larger gathering like this to come together every Sunday to, to be inspired, to be reminded of, of who we are and reminded of, of the larger body of Christ that we're a part of, to come to the table and remember who Jesus is and to remember what Jesus has given to us. We need these gatherings to remind us, and being a part of this gathering is important. And one of the things that just that drives me crazy about the culture that we have today says this gathering isn't important anymore. That, that coming together as a church is really important unless there's something more important. And that more important list is getting longer and longer and longer. And I know that there are real reasons to not be here on Sunday, and I know that there are legitimate excuses. But please make this gathering a priority. Because we need our family here. We need our family here. And when part of the family doesn't show up, we miss it. And we don't attend just because of some guilt-ridden, checking-the-box thing. We gather together because we're a family and we need one another. But this is still too large of a gathering for us to really know the needs of one another. And so that's why our life groups are so important, that we grow in smaller gatherings. Families that can come together and really understand who one another is and, and how, how they really need and how they really, what's really going on. And so it's important to be a part of these smaller groups. That's where meals are given and gift cards are given and babysitting happens and helping one another in really meaningful ways. That's where that happens. But then out of the overflow of this is our go, going beyond our walls, going beyond who we are. That we pray that we can be bold witnesses to the world around us. This is where the mission comes in. It's not the place to start. It's the overflow of what's been going on. It's the overflow of what happens as we worship together. It's the overflow as we, we love one another and care for one another. It's the overflow of loving God and loving others that we're able to go into our neighborhoods boldly, that we're able to go out of our comfort zones, bearing witness to the risen Christ. And so will we be the community that God has created us to be? Will we be that community? Can the church be what people are looking for as they troll through social media? Wealth and possessions, these are challenging things, and that's why Jesus talked a lot about it. As we look at the church in Acts, we see that, that discipleship, a discipleship that does not affect our checkbook is really no discipleship at all. And it all starts with being thankful. Rejoice always. 
pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul says, give thanks in all circumstances, even the really cruddy ones, even the difficult ones, even the uncertain ones, even in the happy ones, even in the sad ones, in all of those circumstances, we give thanks. And if we give thanks in all circumstances, everything else will flow from that. Our life together, our generosity to others will flow out of our giving thanks. And we testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's grace will powerfully work in us and through us. I want us to come to the table now. If you are um, helping with with communion, if you could go ahead and, and head to the back and get the trays ready. Because I think this, this connects so well if, as, as we're thinking about who we are in Christ, what Jesus has done for us. We take the bread and we take the cup as a reminder. And if we really understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, then generosity, love for God, love for others, a community of faith will flow out of that.